is the church in free fall in the West? Yeah, it's been in free fall in the West for some decades, and it's getting the media coverage now, and maybe to some extent coming to an actual head. The marriage rate has plummeted, John, because from a demand side point of view, marriage doesn't look attractive to young men. You can't really blame them. Whereas before, it's like Paul and Paula singing to each other in Motown. I, I can't wait. I've waited for so long for school to be through. No one else would rather do. I want to marry you. No one's. <laughs> Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. I hope you're all doing well. You just heard Timothy Gordon, an opinionated but well-informed American author. To be precise, Tim is an American Catholic author. He is also a teacher and host of the popular podcast, Rules for Retrogrades. He holds degrees in literature, history, philosophy, and law. So Tim kept me on my toes in my interview coming up with him. Tim, I suppose, is a social conservative, drawing his inspiration from traditional Catholic teaching. And this is where it gets controversial and will draw fire from many in modern progressive movements. Even from within the ranks of the church, Tim writes about. Well, maybe his ideas will be too explosive for many, but he does have a legion of loyal fans. Now, on a sentimental and upbeat note, I have to think there is a reason why this interesting and gripping episode might have gotten slotted for release in late October. And by the way, I find Tim a fascinating person full of energy and drive and creativity. I interviewed Tim back in the summer as he was getting out the word on his new book, The Case for Patriarchy, from Sophia Institute Press and everywhere else. Tim has something to say about the plunging marriage rate and what's behind it. It's just not attractive to the masses of young people out there. And that's Tim's take. Now, he may have a point. I would hate to think that it is entirely true. And there are some real signs of grief in the rate of marriage and some evidence of a plunging marriage rate. But here's where it gets interesting. And I can only speak from experience. Our oldest daughter got married to a kind, caring and beautiful young man this past weekend in our local parish church here in New Jersey. And for them, they are thrilled. Our family are also thrilled. What a day we had with singing and dancing. Sure, some Irish dancing too. We had just a grand time. Well, I am pulling myself together now. Back to this subject at hand. Timothy J. Gordon discusses much with me, including his new and compelling book, The Case for Patriarchy. No, it won't please the feminist movement, but I will let Tim do the talking and the explaining. Here's a quote on the case for patriarchy from a blurb on the back cover of the book. 
As feminism swept across Western society in recent decades, our understanding of patriarchy became corrupted and men have been astoundingly swift in their forfeiture of their God-given patriarchal rights and duties. End of quote. Yes, the name of the book is The Case for Patriarchy by Timothy J. Gordon, and I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. When you read The Case for Patriarchy, I think you, the reader will get a very strong sense that this is not just a bunch of opinions by a guy. This is the univocal, clear, perennial, 2,000-year-old teaching of the church, and it's never faltered on it. It's yeah. just gone silent on it the last 50 years or so. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Timothy J. Gordon. He is a Catholic author, a teacher, and host of the popular podcast, Rules for Retrogrades. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Timothy Gordon, it's great to have you on my show. Where are you on vacation, by the way? We're in uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama. Nicest beach for about 700 miles, really a hidden gem of the South in, in the vacationing South. It's very, it's quite... Quite leisurely, as far as gentlemen of leisure go. Well, we all need that, and you need it. You have a large family. Yeah, it's important to do those things. I, I sometimes feel we take less and less vacations as Americans because we're constantly working, though COVID may have changed that whole equation. Yeah, not for us. Not for us. My family, we, um, we have an RV. We didn't take it this time. But a big part of family life is um, not just praying together, but playing together. And yeah, we've had an amazing week here in uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama. It's a great place. And uh, we, we were either RVing around the country or doing driving vacations whenever we can. We really enjoy being together. You have an interesting career. You have a new book out and you're, let's call you an academic. You're also a Catholic podcaster. Sure. Yeah. After, you know, 2018, 2019 had, had the, uh, you know, really, really hit hit podcast uh, slash YouTube show with Taylor Marshall called TNT for Taylor and Tim. After that, you know, I, I published a book called Rules for Retrogrades. And I had a podcast and YouTube show that, that debuted of the same title. That's what I do now. And I teach classes on uh, online on Zoom, actually, called the Retrograde Academy. And if people are interested in taking homeschooler or adult education classes and things like Aristotle or Latin or church history, you can go to timothyjgordon.com and click enroll. It's, it's, a, it's a good way to bring about the classical education movement right from home. No better time to do it than now during so-called COVID. Oh, so-called COVID. Maybe we'll get back to that. I, I caught one of your, your shows with Taylor Marshall. He's a phenomena of his, of his own, sort of like an iconoclast, if you will, and he challenges a lot of what's going on at the Catholic Church. Would that be correct? Yeah, you know, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't really like that before. He, he's had a YouTube channel for 
12 or 13 years. And he, he was always kind of um, an establishment guy before I came on. But really the summer of 2018 was a watershed moment for him. And I came on and, and um, we started doing those TNT shows where we became, I, I guess what you might call from an ecclesial, ecclesiologically correct point of view, iconoclastic. And after that, after, after TNT, I, I did shows with him for a little over a year. After that, he became more known as an iconoclast. But um, it was really kind of the, the watershed moment was when Taylor Marshall was sort of establishment guy defending Pope Francis and in all of the, the wackiness that is the Francis pontificate. Then all of a sudden, boom, summer of 2018, summer of shame, you know, Pope Francis is covering for Cardinal McCarrick. And then suddenly TNT shows are, are a hit all around the United States and the world. And now Taylor Marshall is known as a Catholic iconoclast. That, that really got started with, with uh, me and Taylor. It's an amazing phenomenon. We're going a bit off topic, but because we're on it, it's, I, I, I'm just fascinated by getting a little bit about this. A lot of these Catholic channels and networks are getting huge audiences. And that sort of suggests something to me, that they're not getting the message in um, more conventional venues. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, look, with the age of the internet, if, if people aren't getting what they're looking for, which is to say intellectual sustenance from places that were bastions of establishmentarian Catholicism, like EWTN, which still has some great shows on it, still some great reporting insofar as um, Ed Penton is still there and Raymond Arroyo, which, which, are, which are, you know, friends of mine who I really respect. But if those are the lone voices in the wilderness, so to speak, on establishmentarian Catholic places like EWTN, then people will go to the internet. And that's why, you know, that is what made TNT so popular for that year or so was, you know, they could hear sort of common sense truths from guys that had studied Catholic philosophy and some Catholic ecclesiology in a, a ready accessible way. It, it's kind of like Catholic populism to the extent that populism can ever be a part of, you know, the Roman Catholic taxonomy hierarchical structure. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet now on, on Catholic media and on some of these alternative sites. It covers the COVID conspiracies. It covers the scandals in the church. Um, yeah. Some of the stuff is good. Sometimes it's hard to sort out what is toxic and unhealthy and what is leading us in a good direction. Is there any problems with all of this? Yeah, quality control and informational control is a problem. I mean, if we are, what we're discussing is a new age where the typical media gatekeepers can't really control internet folks like Taylor Marshall or me or Church Militant or Patrick Coffin. You know, all of these are friends that I work very closely with. And I'll tell you what, um, for, for, for people that, that have a self-governor or a self-censorship that really want to be accurate and restrict themselves to the truth, I, I put myself at the top of the list there. I don't want to say it just because it's uh, grabby. I don't want to say something that's salacious or fatuous. So with people that have self-governors, it works out. It works out well. You're getting the unvarnished truth. But then, of course, this do does lead itself to a kind of tabloid Catholic reporting or commenting for those who require some sort of gatekeeper but aren't getting it through the conventional measures like a Catholic uh, television 
network news. Yeah. So, so it, it has presented a new era in information gathering and getting in the Catholic world. But it's, hey, it's a healthy development. For, yeah. for the time being, this is the only way you're going to hear about what's really going on in the Francis party. We'll get to your book in a moment. But one last thing, the recent scandal or allegations against a high-ranking uh, priest who was using some app. I can't recall its name for mm-hmm. hookups, apparently. I don't know if these were proven. But yeah. this was another alternative. This, this was another shock to people. And it's yeah. amazing. It was reported. And, uh, you know, I mean, you could call that tabloid journalism. But if it's true, it's, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, uh, what's with the column or the pillar. Grinder or something. You will, yeah, it was reported on the pillar that the app is called Grinder. It's, you know, homosexual priests have been long reputed to have their, their, their main uh, stock of, of internet resources um, vis-a-vis the hookup culture there at Grinder. It's a homosexual hookup site. And, it, you know, I've long heard the tales. This was sort of the smoking gun proof. So I don't know. I don't think that really counts as fatuous, cheap reporting. That's just yeah. real. No reporting. And I don't know what it, I don't know what defensive uh, narrative there is on behalf of that guy who was just found sort of smoking gun guilty. But by the way, two days from when we're shooting this in two days will be the third year anniversary of Archbishop Vigano releasing his very potent smoking gun evidence against Pope Francis showing that he did enable and cover for uh, Cardinal McCarrick since we're since we're on that topic. Wow. Yeah. So I know in our diocese here in New Jersey and throughout New Jersey, it was another hammer blow and nobody, you know, nobody in the pews except those who are well-informed imagine this. Yeah. I mean, who, who, who would, uh, who would, it's a strange world. It's a clown world now. And that's, that's, I guess this shouldn't be news. It's, it's late 2021, John. And it's strange in the church. It's strange in the secular world. And if people still are looking at the world or the church through rose-colored lenses, then, you know, best of luck. But it's, it's pretty obvious how strange things went and got over the last decade, let's just say since the last couple of years of Benedict's pontificate and his strange retirement, which has never really been explained adequately, and then all eight and a half years of the Francis Pontifian. What, what, a, what a strange world. So you're not a big fan of the current Pope? Not a huge one, no. <laughs> no. Are there any? I mean, is there anyone that believes in the body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus, real presence of Christ, the sacraments, Holy Mother Church? That's a, that's a big fan of this church anymore. I, I, I haven't met is the church, well, we hear it's in trouble. Uh, the numbers going to church are off, vocations are down. Uh, we've had all the scandals. We probably will have more. Uh, there's bankruptcies. They're paying out uh, a lot of money on lawsuits. Is the church in free fall in the West? Yeah, it's been in free fall in the West for some decades, and it's getting the media coverage now, and maybe to some extent coming to an actual head. But th- this doesn't mean that. Um, scatologically, ecclesiologically, teleologically, that, that anything's really going to change. I mean, the, the church is still indefectible. It's got all the, the precepts. It's got all the marks. It's vouchsafed against ever failing, so to speak, in the strict sense anyway. But it, it's certainly culturally failing. There's, a, there's an important distinction there.
let, let's move to your to your book. It's a pretty heavy topic. Um, it's an interesting one, and in many ways, it's quite timely given all the cultural changes we've had in the West since the '60s and various liberation movements. And I'll ask you to sort of give us a thumbnail sketch of it, if you will. I, I realize that's a, a tall order, but just tell us about it and why you wrote it. Well, we were talking about Pope Francis, who's a big fan of ecumenism. So he should love my book because guess what? It unifies the one, two, three forms of Christian in the world, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and, and Reformation Protestants, insofar as... The book, which is called The Case for Patriarchy, shows that a Christian, insofar as he is a Christian, must love the patriarchy. Now, of course, Protestants don't accept the, the top half of the bimodal patriarchal structure. We have basically two patriarchies that comprise Christianity. There is a clerical patriarchy, an all-male priesthood and, and uh, episcopate that is recognized by Eastern Orthodox and, and us Catholics, that the Protestants don't recognize, but the real, the, the bottom patriarchy in this bimodal structure, the household or the lay patriarchy, uh, a patriarchy of individual households run by individual householders or fathers or patriarchs, AKA priests of the ecclesiola, to borrow Pope John Paul II's term. This one's embraced by all three types of Christian including the Protestants. In fact, sometimes the Protestants are the best at most explicitly defending the household patriarchy that quite simply, there is no such thing as a philosophically coherent Christian feminism. Uh, Men must be the leader of households. That is to say, fathers and husbands, they are the priest, prophet, and king of the household. And there is no philosophically coherent way for a Christian to simultaneously attack this concept or demur on this concept. Are you anticipating a lot of criticism from mass public out there, certainly conservative-minded people and those who adhere to the traditional tenets of the Christian faith and Catholic faith uh, will be very supportive, but there's going to be a large group of people are just going to give a lot of blowback. Look, I mean, if you're talking about the national Catholic reporter types who, who ran, I think, before April of this year alone, you know, in January, March, and, and February of this, this year alone, 2021, they ran two separate articles on me that I know of, maybe one per month in the first three months, but two for sure in January and March. On my podcast alone, one time they attacked me and Father Mitch Pacwa for saying something sensible on my podcast. And another time they attacked uh, Patrick Coffin on my podcast for saying something sensible. Actually, I think the, the Coffin uh, instance in March was an attack for what, you know, the topic of this book. Types like the National Catholic Distorter, as we like to call it, <laughs> don't even matter. I mean, they're not even, they're not even creedally Catholic. So what do I care? It's all noise. I simply, honestly, could not care less. What we're calling conservative Catholics or the kind of par excellence conservative Catholics traditionalists, they've been very supportive of the book and have been buying it off of, you know, off the shelves in terms of pre-order. So I, I, it's not tribalism per se, but I just simply don't care what 
a Catholic that that demurs on Catholic teaching on the literality of the scriptures or contraception, the teaching against artificial contraception by the church or the real presence of, of Christ, body, blood, soul, divinity in the Eucharist. Well, of course, they're going to demur on the literality of the lay patriarchy as well, right? I mean, they're the ones calling themselves Christian or Catholic feminists. But what do I care? That's that's the response. They're, they're not Catholic, greedily speaking. I'm going to sort of put it on a very elementary level. I know that's not the way you might like it. I'm dumbing things down a bit. Then we can get a little more intense, if you will. So the case for patriarchy. Uh, are you arguing then for a return to traditional families and households like pre-1950 uh, where the woman is at home, man goes out to work, you raise your 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 family with the faith and uh, and the breadwinner is you and those other notions you mentioned uh, on, the, on the life values, you mentioned contraception, that's also part of the same mindset. I'm not sure what would have happened in terms of change agency at the year 1950. I would say the change agency culturally is marked by the red letter date 1970, when even Time magazine has noted something they call, this cracks me up, the paradox of declining female happiness, measured every year, once a year, from 1970 to now. And they simply can't figure out, John, why women, particularly suburban working women, uh, have declining happiness year to year, every year for the last 51 years from 1970. 1970, by the way, is when most of the women were forced into the workforce mm. uh, by, by social uh, shaming. And, and women did not want to do this. They had this voiced on them. It created something of a two-income trap I'm sure we'll talk about later. And every year since they went into the workforce, I call it the phenomenon, the left calls it the paradox of declining female happiness. They've gotten incredibly sad. So have the rates of, um, well, infertility is rising in marriage because people are having kids later. They're not getting married. Uh, children are less happy. There's rising depression rates among husbands. And of course, wives lead the way with the most depression of all. The strange thing is, like I said before, that Time Magazine and liberals like them count this as a paradox. This would simply be a phenomenon, a self-explaining uh, phenomenon. Uh, you know, I, I don't understand why they don't understand it. So 1970 is the year that most people say second wave feminism began. My book does a lot more work than any other book I've read so far in explaining that first wave feminism, which uh, antedated second wave feminism by more than 100 years, okay. I count 1848, uh, was just as toxic as second wave feminism. But second wave feminism is when all the women got forced through shaming and social pressure into the workplace. Uh, I, I would just like to close this answer by pointing to an interesting dialogue between two feminists, one French and one American. The French feminist is Simone de Beauvoir, and the American feminist is Betty Friedan. And Simone de Beauvoir said, look, in America, I know you don't like, you Americans dislike heartily, the idea of top heavy social, top heavy legislative pressure to actually be forced to do things. But this is going to be the only way to get women to leave their natural role as mother and wife that they love as homemaker. Women will not do it willingly. 
And if you do things, if you feminists that are American do things the American way and just try to persuade them, you're going to lose because women want to be home. They're happier at home. We need to force them. That's what France is doing legislatively. And Betty Friedan's like, whoa, that's heavy duty even for me. Um, this is what feminism is about, getting women out of the home in order to destroy the family. If you look at first wave feminism, maybe we can take a look at it in a second or two. The teleology, the goal was there all along. I guess the question is, who was driving this? What ideologies? But I picked 1950 arbitrarily. I could have said 1960, whatever, but I guess 1970 was the second wave. Um, I'm thinking about a lot of books that came out in the 60s and just the way the whole culture was changing, the Woodstock generation, and you had the Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedman, who supposedly chronicled the misery of American suburban housewives, how they were so unfulfilled cooking dinner and getting the kids ready for school. They weren't using their talents. And depending on who you talk to, she was making this very compelling case. But you're saying now, in retrospect, there's a lot of evidence that women today haven't been as miserable as they were in the past, these working wives today are, are quite unhappy as a group, it sounds like. Well, yeah, that's what, the, that's what the, the real data suggests. Betty Friedan admits that she made up all of those facts. There's a Cosmo magazine writer that worked with Betty Friedan. She made up all those facts. Oh, yeah, they, well, she didn't use numbers. She just yeah, statistical information. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no statistics in the, the feminine mystique. She just, she, she accounted in, in typical, uh, left after apparatchik faction, she just says, look at all these horrible things that have happened to women. You know, there's this oppressive patriarchy that's horrible for women. She asserted her, her conclusion, as we say in the law, right? You asserted your conclusion. You didn't prove it. You asserted it. Uh, so there was never any serious statistical uh, data science that supported her, her nonsense argument. It was simply an asserted conclusion. Now, from 1970 to now, the last 51 years, there's hard data science surveys that are put out there by left-wing institutions that provide the closest thing to facts on the question of you know, female happiness. And, and it proves the exact opposite of the point that the feminists, the second wave feminists wanted to prove, which is why they have to call it a paradox. They assert their conclusion. They assume what they set out to prove which is the idea that, that females are happier in the workplace instead of the home, which Christianity, we, we should go through some of the sources, has taught for two millennia. This goes against female nature. It also goes against just the, the natural law teachings that we kind of already know. So, yeah. So you it, used a very interesting word. Um, you said women were shamed into going to work. In other words, if they weren't at work, they might somehow convince themselves that they're unhappy whereas their ideal is to actually stay at home with the kids and be housewives. Sure. If they're Christian. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, there are seven places that St. Paul mentions in uh, his epistles that women need to be at home. Yeah. All of the patristic writers, the first Christian uh, scriptural commentators like St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. John Chrysostom, several of the Eastern writers besides that enlarge upon those writings in, um, in, in the Pauline epistles. And then, of course, even 20th century popes, I think six different 20th century popes, to, to prove that this isn't some dusty old teaching, um, 
six different 20th century popes say, look, Christian employers must play, pay a wage for a single male wage earner because this is what Christianity requires. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite, quite obvious. The, the Roman catechism requires women to stay home in the duties of wives. So this isn't an arguable proposition any more than the real presence is an arguable Christian proposition or the ban on artificial contraception is. It's not my opinion. This is example. the church teaching. And again, it's the church teaching. Yeah. Who is driving this ideology? Is it, um, you know, the secular left? Is it in cahoots with corporations who see an advantage in having households with two earners? Um, or is it just happening? Is it just an evolution of ideas or something? Well, I would say there's, there's a diabolic um, psychology behind it, insofar as it's pretty much it being feminism is constitutive of the original sin, right? I mean, when we talk about other subversive leftist ideologies that one might be tempted to say are more central to leftism writ large, I'd urge you to think again, you know, the, the serpent in the garden did not tempt Adam and Eve with Marxism or any form of economic socialism, mm. with transgenderism, with homosexualism, with, uh, you know, really even relativism. It was feminism. The, the woman speaking on behalf of the, man, the family and the householder being silent. Both Saints Jerome in his commentary on um, scripture and St. John Chrysostom both comment the serpent pinpointed the woman because she's not made uh, intellectually in her soul or in her body to be the leader. And therefore, if the serpent with a much, much, much superior intelligence to any human, the diabolic psychology, if he wanted to succeed, he knew to pinpoint the woman. And so there's something really, really, this is not the genetic fallacy, by the way. There's something really telling about the fact that original sin is mutually constitutive with feminism. It's not mutually constitutive with socialism, Marxism, fascism, any of the other dangerous isms of the 20th century. It's feminism. So it shouldn't be a surprise at all that the final attack uh, eschatologically, that is, we're, we're, we were told by Sister Lucy of Fatima um, through the intermediary of Cardinal Carlo Cafaro, one of the four dubia cardinals. He died in 2017. He gave a talk two months before he died. And he said, look, I got a letter uh, decades ago, an unexpected one from Sister Lucy of Fatima. And she said that the final attack of Satan on the world would be on the family. And yeah, you could think homosexualism or transgenderism, but really what is the proto-homosexualism and transgenderism? It's feminism. And Cardinal Kafara also said, by the way, that final attack is underway now, meaning quite a bit across quite a few categories. But he identified, he said, by the way, that, that time is now. The final attack is on, feminism first, then you get, you know, reiterations of it like homosexualism and transgenderism. It's really central to what's going on in the world and even in the church, the feminism. Critics of communism and the, the far left, the secular left, point to the idea about the destruction of the family unit. That's one of their goals.
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, the real origin of first wave feminism is the Seneca, Seneca Falls Convention in upstate New York in 1848, which is the exact same year that Marx published the Communist Manifesto, right? So 1848 seems to be a crucially diabolical year. And yet again, whereas, you know, the errors of Russia that Sister Lucy spoke about at Fatima, since we're on that, um, were, were potent, yes, but they were spread around the world, not in economic terms, right? Because economic communism was never sufficiently popular in the West to be spread into all the first world countries. What was feminism? And I, I do emphasize, John, that at that Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, first wave feminism, which is usually granted a pass as neutral or even benign by conservatives, was anything but the five or six goals in that document that they reified at that Seneca Falls Convention with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the famous feminist who made the appearance there, was women in the priesthood, uh, female concupiscence, female, you know, sleeping around. They said they need to do this more to match men. Women need to get out of the home. Women need to stop being mothers. They need to, they need to take gainful employment and they need to become leaders. Um, so this is everything that's toxic that conservatives will admit is toxic within second and third wave feminism. The point is it was there in first wave feminism all along, which is to say there is no first third of the three waves that is benign. All of them were evil. All feminism is evil from a Christian perspective. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Timothy J. Gordon. He is a Catholic author, a teacher, and host of the popular podcast, Rules for Retrogrades. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. The supplantation of this patriarchy with a feminist matriarchy, Gordon argues, has proven to be the most devastating of all the subversive revolutions waged against Christendom by the radical secular left. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, all the other subversive leftisms have well-defined limits. Think of Marxism. I mean, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, Americans, even if they were centrists by temperament, they knew to avoid the excesses of Soviet-style political economy. Right. And, and this was a unifying moment because of the well-defined political economy limits of Soviets. Don't be like the Soviets. You know, even American centrists were right of center insofar as they acknowledged those limits. We don't want to be like them. Even transgenderism, which is destroying everything it touches over the last four years or so, has well enough defined limits that most most Americans, even kind of tepid centrally inclined conservatives know this is just it's too asinine to make any sense same thing with with the kind of homosexualist movement over the last 20 years but feminism 
has really got conservatives in a tailspin because even in the conservative Catholic homes where they say, oh, well, my wife's going to stay home, there's still a lot of feminism that crept into that one income conservative looking home uh, in terms of the expectations that are engendered and fostered by feminism, that the, that the husband should not be the leader, that this should be something like a democracy, that, uh, you know, that the husband, that the husband's serpent, uh, servant leadership, which is uh, genuine, it is a servant leadership, like any old style king, kingdom, kingship, that this ought to mean that really the husband's not the leader, that he doesn't have final say in all matters. And this is just wrong. So it's been far more insidious because it, feminism's boundaries are so ill-defined and because it touches every human being. Whereas homosexualism, okay, so at most one out of a hundred people are influenced by incursions by homosexual philosophy into the mainstream. And yes, they're, they're grossly outsized. They're disproportionate to the people that are actually influenced by it. So it seems really negative. You know, you got to guard your kid's eyes when they watch any network television, which will have two or three homosexual characters. But that doesn't have the same effect that every single household has uh, a, a derivative from feminism. I mean, half of the households out there are divorces, which are direct products of feminism. And the half of the households out there that are not broken homes, that are not divorced households, they have constant squabbling because we don't have well-defined limits on male and female power anymore. That's Satan at work. And also the marriage rate has plummeted. Right, which is what I call a demand side problem, right? In the Reagan era, in the Reagan administration, we talked about supply side economics and demand side economics. The marriage rate has plummeted, John. Because from a demand side point of view, marriage doesn't look attractive to young men. You can't really blame them. Whereas before, it's like Paul and Paula singing to each other in Motown. I, I can't wait. I've waited for so long for school to be through. No one else would rather do. I want to marry you. No one's <laughs> marriage is an attractive thing anymore, right? The man's not like, hey, if I put my life on the line, I'm a lordly, virtuous man. I'm going to get honored. I'm going to have a wife that's not only, you know, helping me by cleaning, cooking, you know, doing the dishes, looking pretty for me, staying at home, but also just loves me with the, the heart of a good woman, which is an admirable thing. That no longer exists in 99 out of 100 cases. So men aren't attracted to being married anymore. When, when my young male students, my 12th graders would see my wife at field day or something back when I was a teacher, they'd say, that looks like a really good deal. I mean, they would all say it. They're like, your wife's pretty. She's really loyal. She's into what you do. She takes the kids up and just, she supports everything you do. And you guys always look like you're laughing and having fun. Well, because marriage is attractive. It's a lovely life. But that's not the life that, that these kids are seeing 99 out of 100 of their parents or their friends' parents living. The ideas you're espousing now are radical to a lot of people in the West and in America, just as feminism back in the day, going back many generations, was radical to a lot of people back then. It's a strange flipping things. How would you describe then the ideal setup? Are you suggesting that the church and society should be encouraging more traditional family arrangements? What, should we be hearing that from the pulpit? I mean, I guess the other question is, 
would couples or women who don't agree with that, they might feel shamed into becoming more traditional. And it, maybe that could turn into its own kind of disaster. Well, I don't think so. I don't think clear church teaching is ever catastrophic. I think clear church teaching being what it is simply needs to be promulgated. Yes, from the pulpit. I mean, the teachings are on the book. It's like being in a town where there's a law that's on the book that is just not being enforced by police officers or the mayor or something. If we go back to the Catholic teaching, which has never failed to be the case, then it will reverse the declining female happiness. The, the women, I mean, I, I can't tell you, this is, I can't tell you how many women have approached me and men that, uh, have told me just this because I mean, I, I reach a lot of people with, with rules for retrogrades, my podcast. I've been talking about this a lot longer than the book has been out. The book's still in pre-order uh, case for patriarchy. They say, Hey, uh, Tim, I quit my job. I'm a, I'm a married woman. I quit my job. I've been at home for the last six months. I quit it because of you. I've never been happier. I talk to husbands that say my wife quit her job. I talked to two young med students who were married and they were in med school together. And the woman was thinking about it over the course of two or three months and then eventually quit. And she said, I'm, I'm super happy. And they just contacted me recently. Hey, I got, I got pregnant. And um, now I'm excited to stay home and raise the baby. Like, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. Even for women that go to college, right? They have a unique opportunity that from a, from a classical education perspective that men don't have, which is, to study, you know, philosophy, philology, theology, the beautiful things that they'll need to educate their kids, because the Catholic schools are as bad as the public schools now. So they have this chance, you know, that only aristocratic young males get to study the true subjects in school. The men are having to study glorified trade school just to get a job, most of them. I mean, I was, I was blessed to get a uh, a deep education in philosophy and to, to make that work. But women can go to school and study the beautiful things that the church wants you, you to study so they can be the ones to stay home and homeschool the kids. It, it works out very beautifully. So this does not mean if women aren't going to be in the workforce that they, uh, that they can't go to college. That's actually a, a communist left idea. John Dewey, University mm -hmm. of Chicago, the idea that of skills-based education that's a wrong mashup of Puritan mixed with Marxist ideas. Education, classical education, which has always been a Catholic thing, the education Augustine got, young Francis got, young Thomas Aquinas got, is the trivium, right? The trivium and the quadrivium, learning about intellectual moral virtue for the growth of the individual himself. It has nothing to do with acquiring skills to get a job later. That's trade school. The Protestants took that over in America and it's, it's a catastrophe. Young women should go to college to meet a husband and to, to get a, good, a great education that they can use to educate their own kids. It works out uh, perfect for them. Do you see a trend where there are more women staying at home, they've gone to college, staying at home, maybe homeschooling their kids? Is it a growing number of people? You've, a lot of people have approached you, it seems. Uh, among Catholic traditionalists, yes. This is, this is on the rise. Catholic homeschoolers, and Catholic uh, one one income households. I mean, it's interesting that even Elizabeth Warren, Pocahontas, right, <laughs> advocated for the single income household as late as 2004. She called it a. She published a book called "The Two Income Trap," 
which is actually quite a decent book. I skimmed the thing and it's rather efficacious in its argumentation, just using the numbers. Two incomes is a trap. Once one gets keyed into a lifestyle of two incomes, uh, the way a lot of conservative Catholic couples that aren't yet convinced say, oh, my wife will work until we pop out our first kid, then it's very difficult, almost impossible to cut back, to scale back to one income. The way to do it all along is to have one income, even in the, the interregnum period in between marriage and popping out the first kid. And this is a Catholic teaching anyway. The teaching is not that mothers, Catholic mothers should stay home with their kids. The Catholic teaching from the Roman catechism is that wives should stay home, should love to stay at home and never go out except in necessity. So there's a distinction there. And when the kids are raised and doing their own thing, they, these wives could go out and maybe pick up their career again? Well, that's kind of that's that's what I'm actually arguing isn't isn't the Catholic teaching. It's it's wise. The distinction is always in in the Book of Sirach, in all of Paul's writings, inerrant writings, by the way, in Scripture, mm. Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Timothy, Titus, all, all the big ones, First Corinthians. Um, St. Paul talks about this as wives, not just mothers. Um, this is sort of a secular conservative idea, you know, that, that, that mothers should stay home and, and raise their kids as long as they're young, and then they can go and pick up their career. The problem with this is that this leads to squabbling. This leads to a diminution in the popular mind of the very noble work of homemaking, uh, which does not require children. It requires a family of two, two you know, husband and wife, all of my friends that when they got married, even before kids, their wives worked jobs, they would come home and they would argue like egalitarianism. They would argue over who does the dishes, who does the cleaning. I mean, I would always ask them who makes the house a home. They get home on a cold winter's day and it's, it's not a home, it's a house, right? And, and it's cold and dirty and both uh, St. Jose Maria Escriva the founder of Opus Dei talked about this. Uh, who's the cheery one, right? If both of you go to work, if both of you go to work, you're both going to be in bad moods. The wife has traditionally been there to be cheery and say, oh, what happened at work? Oh, it's not so bad. You know, you're at Tuesday, only three more days till the weekend and uh, have baked some cookies. There should be smells happening. The strangest <laughs> thing I've heard, as strange as uh, when I was in grade school, kids that were excited to go back to school after summer, I was dreaded. The last day of summer, it was the worst day of my year. I always thought it was bizarre when kids would say, I was so bored all summer. I had nothing to do. It's like, don't you have a life? When, when, when young married women who don't have kids yet say, well, what should I stay home and do? I say, I don't know. Gardening, cooking, cleaning, uh, journaling, reading, praying, uh, craft work, knitting, keep a scrapbook. I, there are so many things. Watch TV even at that point. I mean, it's a very strange claim. Like I say, it's as strange as the claim of those, those weird kids that wanted to go back to school in August or September. I hated it. I cried the last night of summer, even in you know, fifth grade, I think. I love hobbies. So the husband comes home from a hard day at work at the construction site or the office. He's cranky. The wife is cooking up dinner, nice smells in the kitchen, and the kids are running around driving her crazy. And the doorbell's ringing and one of the kids needs a Band-Aid. So does the husband just still sit there mute or get involved 
in the domestic situation? Well, look, I mean, I, I'm only I'm not going further than what the church teaches, right? So the church teaches that, um, and Aquinas indeed teaches uh, of the four cardinal virtues. There are two that are really rulers' virtues in particular: it's justice. You know, the the disputator of justice is the ruler, and the disputator of prudence is the ruler. Because the if if you have final say on all matters. Aside from from mortal sin, a husband can't make his wife mortal sin. Then you know you can run the details how you see fit. If you're asking me how I see fit, um, what I tend to do is like Theoden of Rohan in in uh, the Two Towers, the middle book of uh, the Lord of the Rings. You know, King King Theoden says, "Look, my riders have a three days ride to war, and then they have to have strength enough for battle." So the real battle begins when they get there. Same thing for husbands. The real vocation of being a household or a man begins not in the morning when they go to work. That's actually the cheapest, easiest part of their vocation. A a father, a husband is going to work, right? For those eight or nine hours. They have to preserve enough energy to get home where the real, not battle, but the real vocation begins. You got to have, you got to be enthusiastic. You can't just do like, fathers did in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you know, get home, crack open a beer, and tune out in front of the TV. They got to get home, play with their kids, pray with their kids, take an interest in what the kids and wives were doing, be emotionally present for the wives. You know, wives like to talk. You got to be, talk about your day. You got to talk to your kids about their day, kids about what's going on, you know, the real moral lessons. You got to play with them and pray with them when you get home. That's your job. So I do tell men this, do what you're going to do in your household. But the most important part of your day is not getting up and going to work. That's actually the least important aspect of being a lay patriarch, right? You do have to provide. You, you don't get to sit around. But, you know, heavy's the head that wears the crown. you got to do all this stuff. So when you get home in the evening, there is an active role for the husbands, you're saying? Oh, they're the leaders. So they've got to be yep. the most active once they get home. They can't be just there cracking a beer and have somebody carry my slippers and uh, take me over the next beer. Well, I mean, look, again, everyone has their own system. I I have no problem with a a wife bringing her husband a beer and slippers, but it better be a beer (laughs) and slippers so that the husband can be playing with the kids, praying with the kids, showing them stuff, looking at their drawings, you know. Dispute, dispute, you know, mediated, be engaged. You got to be engaged. That's yeah. you are the man. Remember in The Godfather when 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 Vito tells uh, Santino, like you can never be a real man unless you spend family time and you enjoy spending family time. You're yeah. the leader. You're the man. Your family's not going to have cohesion unless yeah. Gives it interesting point. What about households? who are on low incomes. The husband makes a very low income, is at McDonald's or is unemployed. Is there a case to be made where the wife might have to go out and supplement the income? I mean, it's one thing to say a man with a professional career or a trade or something that makes a pretty decent middle-class income can provide, but let's say he's on a low income, has no skills and can't, can't bring the food home. Is there any compromise? Is there any, um, can it be maneuvered in your thinking? Well, in, in the church's thinking, no. You got uh, Pius the 10th, Pius the 11th, and Pius the 12th all answering very clearly on this matter. No, if, if someone's going to have to go out and hump a second shift, it's going to be the man, which is why, you know, this, 
this country here in America was built on cases like Lochner versus the city of New York. You know, Italian bakers who are new to this country wanting to work more than 50 hours a week, you know, begging to work more than 50 hours a week. You have to have the mom at home. That's the church teaching, right? The wife at home and the mom at home. Uh, hopefully, husbands can cultivate more skills where they can get paid enough hourly that they're not having to work more than 40 or 45 hours a week. But if anyone's going to have to work the 46th hour or the 56th hour. You think that should be the husband? It, yeah, the church has clearly taught that's the husband. The only exception that's granted, right, is in um, mortal injury for the husband or, or death, right? Obviously, single moms have to do this. Obviously, single women um, who aren't married have to do this. And, and widows certainly have to do the same. But, but those are the only exceptions that have ever been recognized. And it's very uh, voluminous teaching on this particular issue. I mean, the church has been on the side traditionally of the, the working man, their social encyclicals, re, Rerum Novarum, you, um, yes. which it defended the rights of workers to organize and have a decent wage. That could be a case where the church could, you know, row in on the area of labor rights where it makes sense. We're not talking about it in the far left sense of put a company out of business, but where it makes sense, the right to negotiate and organize for a decent wage. Well, John, actually, Rerum Navarum and Quadragesi Moano, you know, written respectively by Leo XIII and Pope Pius XI, you know, Quadragesi Moano was the 40th year after Rerum Navarum. He wrote it as a, a celebration. Both of those uh, leading CST documents, Catholic social teaching documents, most people don't know. They list as the purpose of their teaching on, you know, employer-employee relations. Guess what it is? Having the capacity, the capability to have single income households. Both of them say that. They say, given the necessity in the Catholic teaching of having a single income household, employers really need to remember that there's a more ancient and a more imperious demand from heaven on employers, which is be fair. So it's not saying, hey, there should be all kinds of legislative impositions. Rather, employers should remember that heaven itself is going to judge them on. If you had a, an employee who was a man like Bob Cratchit with six or seven kids, you need to take it upon yourself to pay that guy a little more. Well, there's been plenty of history of priests in the Catholic Church who are labor activists. And I know in the labor movement, there was always that close tie between labor leaders and the church. You know, if you went back to some of the old days where they had uh, communion breakfast for labor movement days and the priest was there and there was that whole family solidarity and a living wage kind of mentality. Maybe not as much today. Maybe it's become just so really bizarre how the labor movement looks on what the role of the worker is in our society and rights are. Yeah, I think that's that a lot of that rhetoric has been, um, no, I don't mean rhetoric in the negative sense. I mean, powerful rhetoric has been hijacked by left apparatchiks. It, it's important, I'll say this, for, for employers to pay uh, married with children employees more than others that and it doesn't say the government should be imposing this it says that the employer should be imposing this on themselves but but so the left is obviously made kind of hay out of this for their legislative agenda i'm not talking about the legislative agenda 
what they have shaved off conveniently is the teleology of that mandatum from the church. And the teleology is single income households. I'm curious, what's your take on the Me Too movement? How does all that fit into it? Where did all that come out of? I mean, you listen to the grievances made by some of the accusers. You have to be certainly sympathetic to somebody who claims they were raped or groped by a powerful Hollywood mogul. But I'm just wondering where did that whole movement, is there more behind it than we're led to believe? Look, I, I mean, these, I don't know a whole lot about it, but if someone's legitimately raped, you know, they have a hundred percent of my sympathy and that it doesn't go much beyond that. Like then prosecute to the full extent of the law, the bad guy, you know, the Weinsteins or, or whatever. Now it gets hairy when we're talking about people, it, it, the same thing happens in the church, which I know more about this, even in the McCarrick case, as this case is going to court, well, we're not talking about pedophilia or even a febophilia, which McCarrick also engaged in, which is actually a crime. A febophilia is post pubescent minors that are getting molested. But when we're talking about seminarians feeling pressured to advance their career by sleeping with their, their superior, I guess that's more questionable. That's not illegal. Right. Doesn't violate the positive law, violates church law. But that's a little bit more like me too, unless someone's actually getting raped. If they're if you just have a sleazy scumbag boss, but this is also why women shouldn't be in the workplace, by the way. And this is what um what even Pope Paul the Sixth, liberal Pope Paul the Sixth, said in um Humane Vitae, if women are in the workplace, this is gonna be happening all the time. Me too type stuff. Mm. So um, he saw this coming. He saw it coming. But so I'm not defending these guys. They're scumbags. Mm. I mean, these are scumbags. Mm. This is what happens. You enable sleazy employers to have the near occasion of scumbagginess. I, I hate those guys. I don't defend them. But the point is, you can't actually just go ahead and call it rape because it is a sleazy opportunism uh, where it's evil playing upon evil. The women should be in the home where they're not subject to the advances of scumbags. And the scumbags will not have the women working for them already in a subordinate position, you know, another man's wife, where they can just say, hey, yeah, I want you to work on my yacht till late tonight. It's, it's a horrible, it's a horrible confluence of bad forces. What sort of reaction are you getting within church circles to your book and the ideas you have in it? I mean, people are a lot like you when we were talking, they're like, look, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to push back in the ways I can think of, but but the book's pretty heavy hitting in terms of the magisterium that it's citing. You don't get scripture, tradition, and magisterium all speaking clearly in one direction and have those three teaching voices of the church be wrong. That just doesn't happen. That's what yeah. makes us the one true faith. And, and also, um, those three teachings of voices of the church work together with the natural law, the sort of common sense teaching, even admonished by guys like Aristotle and Plato. Um, you're never going to have that confluence of forces and have re a reasonable audience reject it much longer than the first half of the first chapter or something like that. People, when you read the case for patriarchy, I think you, the reader will get a very strong sense that this is not just a, a bunch of opinions by a guy. This is the univocal, clear, perennial, 2,000-year-old teaching of the church, and it's never faltered on it. It's yeah. just gone silent on it the last 50 years or so. 
It's not just the first millennium of the church and with, a, with an, enabled glo- an enabling gloss, you know, that, that is changed with the times over the last thousand years. That's wrong. That's propaganda to say that. Even six popes in the 20th century reaffirmed the timeless teaching of the church. It's just, it's really overwhelming. A reasonable reader will say, wow, I guess the church has really just gone mute on this, this hard saying. It's definitely a hard saying to the modern reader. Yeah. But to a, 200 years ago or 800 years ago or 1600 years ago, it's very easy saying, <laughs> you know, it's just common sense. It's a very poor dissertation I've written because there's nothing intellectually interesting I'm saying. It's just all the facts of the church. I'm sure there are a lot of people, feminists, uh, people on the secular left with modern ideas who may actually privately admire what you're saying and say, gee, maybe there is something very comforting about that whole idea. But then on the other hand, they'll say, well, it's just not practical. It's not going to happen. Look how far we've come in the last couple of years with the way we've redefined sexuality even. I mean, this is a whole radical change in our environment and culture in the space of even a few years. Right. That's the that's the only serious pushback I've gotten is people saying, well, this might be true. But at the level of praxis, you know, I just don't know if I can do it. And I always say, well, I'll give you these five people's names and situations, descriptions of the fact patterns. And, you know, whether it was a couple of med students or a working guy with a working wife or a working wife whose husband didn't want to hold down a job consistently, it was kind of the same in all of those uh, different modifications of the situation. It's like, look. The men, some men are kind of bounders and don't really want to work a serious job. This is the vocation. It's the lowest aspect of the vocation that the man must work, uh, what must win daily bread. The kind of the basic aspect is she must support the man who's winning daily bread and must make a, a, a lovely home to come home to. I mean, think about it even in terms of, uh, this is what I tell them. Think about it even in terms of Adam and Eve. Eve's curse, you know, when they're being cast out of the garden was, Labor, pains, having kids. Man, man's, Adam's curses, labor itself. So this is a univocal teaching by the church. And the most people can do, like you say, is to demur by saying, well, I don't really think it can be done. Well, I have dozens of cases from people that started following the church teaching and they say, I'm much happier for it. The family is healthier for it. And it's utterly accomplishable. I'm aware of other couples, too, who are in the same situation, and they're blissfully happy. You mentioned the first wave in the uh, 1840-something. That sort of dates around the onset, let's say, of the Industrial Revolution, right? So really, in more rural societies, that's the way it was, the traditional church setup. You know, the man was out on the fields and woman was at home, and there was no contest. Yeah, I, I I would. I agree. I would add that um, for women who help their husbands work in the fields, women and children, this has always been allowed by the church. Even John Paul II, who was the Pope along with Francis, who is the most progressive on this single issue, kind of like the death penalty. They're the two popes that are the most progressive, uh, still maintains the teaching. Look, women can work in the home or in the immediate vicinity of the home, the curtilage, meaning they can go work the fields on their husband's private farm. Or women who work inside the home, the church teaching technically allows 
women too even do uh, if they're uh, I don't know an, an account a CPA or something. If you can do that part time from within your home to supplement the income, I should have said this earlier. The church teaching is never forbade that because you're in the home, especially if it's half time. Being a homemaker does not take eight or nine hour shifts a day the way having a real wage job does. And so, yeah, a lot of women are squeezing in four hours of work if they can work remotely, which seems to be a heightened possibility during COVID from within the home. But whether they have kids or before the period where they have kids or it's after the period where they have kids, the church requires that they're going to do their work in the home or in the vicinity of the home. It's not that strict because so many people telecommute now anyway. They shouldn't be working eight-hour shifts like their husband even from within the home. It seems to be insinuated in some of the church teachings. But yeah, if you need some extra bucks and your husband's already working 55-hour weeks and you, you don't want to never see him, okay, well, then see what, what, a, what a wife can do selling Tupperware online or you know something like that, or, or maybe skilled labor online. A lot of women have master's degrees that yeah. they're not using. As long as you can do it from within the home or the vicinity of the home, my wife helps me a lot with the podcast. Um, so, you know, then that is listed that that's the one exception. I should have stated that earlier when you asked for exception in your own situation could briefly your marriage of six children. Yes, sir. So you live by these rules and virtues. Of course, of course. Yeah. And even when I was quote unquote, just a school teacher, you know, before the kind of second career that I, that I have now, which is really my only career at this point before it kicked off, we always managed to, um, to, to make good. Look, man, I came back into this country without a PhD, with half a PhD, because my daughter was born in Rome, Italy with post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus. And we fled back and they just gave me the PHL. They came back in November of 2008. I had a couple hundred dollars to my name. I now had an extra person with me, a little four-month-old uh, you know, neuro, neurosurgery patient, my, our first daughter, Abby. I had a couple hundred bucks to my name. I had PTSD, bad anxiety, no job to come home to, and just a loving wife and a, and a, and a kid we loved a lot that was going to require a lot of brain surgeries in the future. And I decided to go to law school and we had some really hungry nights when I was in law school, but we didn't want my wife working and we, we made do, you know, we, we ate a lot of ramen noodle for me to get through law school. And, you know, you, you, you pinch pennies, you do whatever you have to do at the time. But the point is having the lovely wife and supporter, the handmaiden of the home there supporting you always makes it worth doing. And, and, and that's just the point. Now that, now that we're kind of, you know, through the thin times, we look back so fondly on, you know, basically being strangers in a strange land, our own country in 2008, when this you know, when this Marxist had been elected president, when we were out of the country, Obama, we come back with an extra kid. I felt like Edmund Dantes on his own shores again for the first time in 16. <laughs> we didn't have much to do, but it, we, we, we pinched paydays and we made it work. And it was a lovely life, even when I had PTSD, because we were up looking at our daughter, wondering if she's going to have seizures. It's a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful life. You toughed it out. A lot of people wouldn't have that perseverance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. My wife did work, I think, the summer before we got married, before either of us really knew or studied the church teaching much at all. So she did it, I think, maybe right when we first got married, but we weren't we weren't really 
practicing Catholicism too seriously then anyway. So then you got into your faith, which we could have you back to talk about at another time. But so you're writing, you're teaching, you have your podcast, you're a um, lot of irons in the fire here. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're opening up more classes on my retrograde classical academy, which is an online academy to aid adult, you know, adults who want to go back and supplement their own education, or maybe they had no education. We teach classes like Aristotle's ethics, important for everyone to take, not just philosophers, Latin one, church history, Catholic social teaching, scripture, even algebra one for homeschoolers. We're really encouraging people to get their kids out of even the Catholic schools and, and homeschool them. And someone has to be at home to homeschool them, which is how all of this gels together. But if you go to timothyjgordon.com, our next wave of classes begin first week of September. We have a sale on on the classes now. The new book is called The Case for Patriarchy, which kind of puts all of this into context. You know, my, my name and my YouTube channel, which is called The Rules for Retrogrades podcast, is Timothy Gordon. And I really appreciate you bringing me on today. Timothy Gordon, it has been my pleasure. Thank you for being on my show. Awesome. Thanks so much, John. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.